0: Welcome to episode 528 with my guest Ted Bunch, I'm Paul Gilmartin, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, it's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling, I'm not a therapist, it's not a doctor's office, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck, the website for this show is metalpod.com. metalpod also the social media handles you can follow us at. Uh, let's dive into some surveys. This is from the struggle in a sense. Oh, I also want to mention um, one of the things that I, I want to try to do in the future is to um, publish some books around the surveys. And to do that, I need the uh, consent of... Of the people who are filling them out, I believe I could be I could be wrong. Uh, it could be that just by filling it out, you're consenting for I mean, you're consenting for it to be read on the show. It might mean that you're consenting for it to be published as well. But just to be on the safe side, I want to start including um, if people do consent. To have it published in a book. Uh, I want to have a field where they can put some type of contact information. And so, because of that, I have uh, taken down the ability uh, on the website for people to view other people's surveys. And I hate to have to do that. It was a difficult decision to, to do. But for now, that's if you're trying to read surveys, that's why you don't have access to them. So, blame my publishing aspirations on that. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Lil Codeine. I remember. You guys remember his first album, Snoozy? So good. Broke a lot of new ground. Uh, Snoozy writes about... uh, his PTSD. Gang activity and police brutality have caused me to almost never feel safe. I compulsively check all locks in the house before I can sleep. About being a sex crime victim. I'm not sure if it counts, but when I was younger, I dated a girl who was a sex addict and would try to sleep with me even when I didn't want to. Um, And then a snapshot from his life. I have many memories of being told my problems were not relevant because I am a straight white cisgender male and I should appreciate my quote privilege. I grew up poor and have always struggled with depression. I've lost many friends to drugs, alcohol, and gang activity. I'm only 20 years old, but have lost over a dozen friends in the last two years. I feel I have no privilege. Well, first of all, thank you for your, your, um, your survey and, and, and sharing all of that. Stuff And my thoughts on the privilege, the white privilege thing is, first of all, it's not a contest, you know, whose pain or life hurdles matter more than others. It's not an either or. You have faced hurdles in your life and people of color have faced hurdles that you don't, and there is a privilege in that specific area, but that does not mean as a whole your life is privileged. It just means you have the privilege of not experiencing racism because the color of your skin is something other than white. I don't know if that makes sense, but I I, I really think it would be helpful if people if there was a way of expressing that that didn't sound like it was minimizing the rest of people's lives outside of uh, the skin color issue. Anyway, thank you for your survey. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by uh, grief pancakes. Oh, this is my favorite. There is no morning, morning breakfast like grief pancakes. A little touch of sad syrup. Uh, about her depression, uh, this, this might be the closest to the de- feeling of depression that I experience. I feel like I'm locked outside on the patio and can see everyone through the glass going on about their life as if it's all going to be fine. That is so good. Oh my God. Thank you for that. One of our sponsors for today is the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. I just finished a session with my therapist, Donna, and she's helped me go through some stuff. As you guys who are regular listeners know, uh, a lot of times I compartmentalize feelings that I don't want to feel, and I deny that I'm feeling them, and it's only until somebody goes, hey, no, really, are you okay, that I stop enough to go, eh, I guess I'm kind of sad, and then I cry uh and so she is uh suggesting many things but one of the things that that she has suggested is and I set a little side a time uh during the day to just kind of check in uh, see how I feel and um and and that way it it keeps the feelings from being this vague thing that I never really address instead it's it's addressed and then I can I can move on with my day instead of it just being this pinging thing that keeps kind of bugging me and then I push away and it just stays vague. Anyway, if you guys want to try online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash metal. Make sure you include the slash metal part so they know you came from this podcast Then you can fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor if they have one they feel is a good fit for you and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it is your thing. And uh, they're licensed in all 50 states. And then finally, this is a struggle in the sentence survey filled out by Chessa and about her ADD. She writes, uh, it's like trying to find one voice in a crowd full of screaming people. About her anxiety. Anxiety feels like I'm made of glass. I feel like people can see through me when I want to be hidden, and if I stumble in the slightest, I'm afraid I'll shatter. About her anorexia. I can't look at myself without hearing my father's voice telling me that no one will love me if I'm fat. Wow. About her sex addiction. The only reason I want to have sex is to feel self-worth. It feels like a job I have to do to be loved about her skin picking. I really need to wear oven mitts. That is so some. Can you imagine if that was this, the the solution to it? Everywhere you go, you have to bring a hot dish to disguise why you have oven mitts on. Hey guys, is Chessick coming over? Yeah, should we order something to eat? No, she's going to be bringing food. You know she always does. Uh about uh, being a sex crime victim, I feel like I deserve to be raped because I put myself in bad situations just for a scrap of attention. Oh, man. Sadly, so many people beat themselves up in that way as well, and it's one of the most common ways that that survivors are mean to themselves, and uh, it's it's a way of trying to make sense of what happened and to tell ourselves that the world isn't Random and dangerous, but it's, it's so it's so detrimental to our long-term uh, process of healing because until we can really feel for ourselves and, and, and cry and process that stuff, um, those wounds just stay unhealed. About living with an abuser, my father told me that my bipolar was from the devil and it wasn't real. He told me I was being punished because I was bad. Your dad sounds like a terrific guy, and I would love to get to know him. If you could connect us, that would be fantastic. we could He and I could maybe go somewhere and just talk about the devil. He could criticize my gut. and <laughs> uh, A snapshot from her life uh and by the way i you're i hope it doesn't sound like i'm just i'm being glib uh even though the last three minutes have been nothing but solid glibness um i i that is fucking horrible that that was the dad that you were dealt he just sounds so fucking sick uh and a snapshot from chess's life. During my darkest depression, I used to run through red lights when driving my car because I felt so numb but was too afraid to take my own life. I couldn't function without getting high. I felt like no one understood. I was unmedicated for my bipolar, ADHD, PTSD, and borderline personality disorder at the same time because I wanted to function without medications. Everyone told me I didn't need medications until they saw me off of them I'm here with Ted Bunch, who is an advocate for violence and uh, discrimination against women and girls. Um, you do a lot of work to promote what what a man is, what a man should be, dispelling myths and stereotypes. You've spoken in front of the UN, uh, or at least you were appointed by the UN as a committee member. Uh, you've been a lecturer for the State Department. That's, uh, those are some nice credentials.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we've had great success of Call to Men over the last 20 years now almost. We were founded in 2002. Uh,
0: where to begin? I'd actually like to know a little bit about your life and kind of what ignited your passion for, for what you do.
1: Sure well um i'm a child of the 60s you know i grew up in the 60s and both of my parents happened to be um they were educated but they were also civil rights activists so the so social consciousness social justice issues were always conversations in our home Mm -hmm. and um certainly around race you know i'm a black man and, and both my parents are black and and um so we always had,
0: what, where were you raised? What town, city?
1: Uh, I was I was raised in Westchester County, actually. Um, my family's from s- South Carolina and North Carolina. I was I was raised in a small, uh, working class, uh, white middle class town, actually called Montrose, which is in northern Westchester, not too far from Peekskill, croton hudson right right around that area.
0: And we're talking New York State.
1: New York State, yes. I'm sorry, yes, New York State. So, um, so what was interesting to me. Um, as I studied in school, I went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And as I studied in school, my, I was a political science major. And, and um, uh, what was always interesting, interesting to me when I looked at history, and I was always very interested in history, was that when all the work was being done in the civil rights movement, right, with um, Black Americans, White Americans, you know, all Americans who were working towards civil rights. And equality from a racial perspective, I also witnessed sexism within that. In other words, you know, it was kind of still men were in leadership, women were there to support, even though women were doing uh, some serious activism. You know, when you look at anti lynching efforts, when you look at, well, Rosa Parks, right? Good example. But men were in the leadership and women were kind of, well, it's, it was a male-dominated um, uh, uh, movement, really, as far as, you know, the voices of women were not respected or silenced. So that always intrigued me because you're, you're looking at addressing one oppression and another one's yes. opposite at the same time.
0: Yeah, and- it, it's interesting, too, the within the women's movement, there was a real minimizing of the voice of the LGBTQ uh, community. And... Uh, There's a great documentary. The name of it escapes me, but um, yeah, I digress.
1: No, you're you're absolutely right. It's a great point. Not only the LGBTQ community, because it's gender-based, right? That's what I mean. The women's movement was gender-based, and 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 then there's discrimination among gender within that, but also among uh, white women in the movement and what their position and perspective uh, was compared to women of color in the movement, though, uh, and black women in the movement. So for instance, if I give an example, um, I ran the largest domestic violence program in the United States for about 12 years here in New York City. And uh, that was uh, before I started a call to men. And then while we were building a call to men, we were both working full time and volunteering for the organization. But even with Women's movement, when you looked at the everyone wanted the violence to stop, right? They wanted men to not be violent, whether it was a white women, white communities, or black women in black communities, for instance. But white women, for instance, wanted the police to come and take this guy away, right? That's how you're gonna stop it. Black women wanted the violence to stop also, but didn't want to call the police because They were worried about the police doing much more than just taking him away. What was going to happen as they take him away? So while the goals are the same, the methods or the perspective and the and the well, the perspective is different. Right. And that's why it's so important that we have voices of those in the margins. And that's where the work of a action is to create a world where. All men and boys are loving and respectful, and all women, girls, and those in the margins of the margins are valued and safe. And those margins of the margins, when we think about gender-based issues, are those folks that you just mentioned, Paul, you know, the the, the queer community, the LGBTQ, transgender, nonconforming mm-hmm. community. So, and all of this thing is connected to manhood. which I- uh,
0: You are raising a family that, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, is mixed race and gender fluid, Yes. Uh, talk talk about raising a a child who is gender fluid in today's uh, culture and atmosphere, and and also within the context of um, talking about discrimination against women, and you know discussion that historically has has been very binary.
1: Yes, very binary. Um, so. Uh, as I go into this conversation, let me also just be transparent with folks that when we talk about men and raising boys and ma- and, 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 and male socialization, um, and uh, while I try to be the best person I can be, I'm also someone who grew up with socialization around being heterosexist and homophobic. So while I um, so i I just want to put that out there that in no way am I an expert i 'm an expert in my relationship with my kids and in the work that we do at a call to men around gender uh, gender equality, but at the same time i 've been taught so many things that are heterosexist and that are homophobic that um uh, it's just important to for people to know that like they 're not alone like this is all this is a very different and new time and new conversation. Um, well, as I talk about my my now eighteen year old son his name's Jalen I mentioned his name because jalen um uh has given me permission to talk about our relationship in any way that I need to because he's an, a bit of an activist himself and and uh very proud of who he is he came out at as gay at fifteen he's now eighteen years old um and uh, a musical theater major right he was he was he was he was that kid who He could have, you know, his older brother played sports, basketball, football, lacrosse, and he could have done that and probably maybe even done it better. Um, But he chose dancing and acting and singing, and he's successful at it. Um, And we encouraged it. We nurtured it. When I, since he was about two years old, when he started crawling, if there were girls of his age in the room and boys of his age in the room, he crawled to the girls every time. Like, they just intrigued him. They were much more interesting to him. And we encouraged that he would go in the closet and get his and get his mother's shoes and would leave my boots alone. And we didn't say, oh, no, no, no. Take those off. Don't wear those. Do this. Do that. We didn't do that. We allowed him to reveal who he was to us. And as a result, uh, uh, um, and talk about raising non-binary children or gender fluid children, and he identifies as gay. Um, He's so much healthier in his perspective, in his self esteem, in how he sees himself, because we weren't frightened by that, that actually we expected him to be gay. Now, I'm using that word expected, not suspected, as if there's yeah. something that he shouldn't true. be. We expected him to. So we were waiting for him. We were ready to celebrate him, wanting him to come out. And, but he had to come out at his own pace, at his own time, that he had to come. Because like many of our kids, Paul, who, who, who don't conform to that binary, they don't fit there. They're trying to fit. They, 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 they feel different. So they're trying to fit they're trying to be heteronormative he tried to date girls he tried to play football it wasn't what he wanted to do and so i'm so glad that we embraced that because it really allowed him to be his full authentic self and as a result he could live out loud without having to hide because i have friends who have children who are also gay who didn't embrace him and were very religious actually and 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 put him down in so many ways and as a result He went underground with his behavior, with who he was. His self-esteem is different, and as a result, you know he's run into a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties, and I didn't want that for Jalen. And I'm really so uh, for, for your listening audience. There's nothing for us and dads especially. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. It's so much wonderfulness to embrace with our children. They're all very different and very special, very unique. And my son who's gay, and I have a daughter who's lesbian. Uh, I have six children, and. Um, uh, uh has he, he he in particular though has taught me more about authenticity and about being a father and about what masculinity looks like than anyone else
0: well what a, what a good segue to talk about masculinity uh, i i also want to plug your book uh, cuz it's uh it's so cool it's called the book of dares you co-authored it with uh Anna Marie Johnson Teague, and it's called the Book of Dares: A Hundred Ways for Boys to Be Kind, Bold, and Brave. And I was browsing through it, and I mean the 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 dares in there are so important for today's kids, and really adults, both genders, but especially for boys. Uh, talk talk about ways to kind of uh, undo the myths about what it is to be a man and, and how to actually put it into action?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, so the book is written by my friend, as you mentioned, Anna Marie Johnson Teagues and myself. Uh, we both work for the organization A Call to Men. Um, and we're friends and anti-violence activists and also parents. And we were really looking at, um, and the book is written um, for, it it was originally written, I should say, from boys from 8 to 13, for male-identified youth from 8 to 13. What we found since it's been out is that boys older, high school boys, are really finding wonderful uh, dares in there that resonate with them. We're also finding that girls and gender non-binary children are also finding things there because The book was really written with the work of A Call to Men, the 20 years experience of A Call to Men. And um, uh, it was written with three main focuses, authenticity, teaching children to be authentically themselves, gender equality, gender equity, and um, healthy masculinity or healthy manhood. And really challenging some of those things that our boys have to face as they're growing up to be men in this, in this world, our collective socialization. So, um, we took the concept of dares because we, we, uh, we interviewed thousands of boys, about a thousand boys around the country and dares intrigued them, but, and scared them, but also fascinated them. And while we, when we think about dares, we think about kind of dares that are very risky, that are uh, dangerous even, and we flipped it on its head and really changed it to positive challenges. So, there's 100 positive challenges that are put in these buckets, healthy masculinity, uh, gender equity, and authenticity. And it's really based on the teachings of a call to men and really wanting to um, uh, dispel some of the teachings, which is that a call to men coined a term called the man box to illustrate the collective socialization of men, how boys are taught to view manhood and what society says it means to be a man. Paul. The movies right TV. exactly exactly
0: yeah. anger yes.
1: weapons yes yes right you're hitting all those points men and boys are expected to be strong aggressive dominating powerful athletic to be providers protectors decision makers and leaders and listen these qualities are wonderful but what happens if a boy falls short of those expectations they're often shamed for not being man enough punished for it and these teachings are reinforced by things we say like big boys don't cry man up and these messages, or don't act like a girl, And these messages uh, are harmful to boys as well as others. And we live in a culture where the man box dominates and it polices boys. And uh, it demands them to really obey its rules and punishes them when they don't. So when we look at the socialization, it leaves boys vulnerable and this is what we wanted to really address: the vulnerability that boys are as we go into manhood. Because we wanted to fill a gap. There wasn't a lot available in the marketplace for boys that focused on emotional health and well-being, empathy, self-esteem. Right? It was a lot in the space for for girls, but not for boys.
0: Vulnerability, and, huge yeah, so, one.
1: Yes, and so it, and and so this man box leaves boys vulnerable to depression, anxiety. Suicide, all the things that men experience, you know, we have anxiety and depression in our country is, is, is off the charts for men. Suicide is three and a half times higher for men than it is for women. And, and the numbers are higher for, for male identified youth than it is for f- female identified youth. And then when we look at the LGBTQ transgender nonconforming youth, it's even higher because they are punished and shamed and they don't feel like they belong anywhere because they're not fitting in to these rigid notions of manhood. So it creates high-risk behaviors, alcohol use, vaping, drug use, all of those things. And the the Book of Dears helps boys to push against that socialization. And that's what our goal is. So it's really an uplifting 100 ways, and and they're all very inspiring.
0: One of my uh, support groups is Thursday Night uh, Men's Stag. And when I got into recovery, people... Kind of uh, turned me on to the fact that sometimes when you have same-sex meetings, people are less afraid to open up. You know, they're not looking to get laid. Um, they're they, they tend to let their guard guard down a little bit more. Not everybody, but this this is a room full of some real alpha dudes. You know, a former bouncer at a Hell's Angels bar. You know, professional athletes, and. We cry, we talk about the stuff that you would never talk about in a locker room. And it is so healing because once one of the guys in the group takes the step of revealing something, there was a meeting one time where where I talked about having experienced uh, covert sexual abuse by my mother and the rest of the meeting, every guy, well, I wouldn't say every guy, but three quarters of the guys shared about having an unwanted sexual experience when they were children. And there were so many tears and so much camaraderie. And I thought, this is bravery. You know, this is, and I'm, I, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm patting myself on the back. My, my intention wasn't to, uh, to necessarily help other people. I just wanted to be seen for who I was. I, I was desperate to have my story validated and it was scary to do it. But because the safety of that room had been established for years before I opened up about that, it was a good enough place to do that. So how, you know, let's say a kid's got a group of friends it's great. He he knows these dares you 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 want him to do. But how does he walk through that fear when the vibe of that group is all of the things that we're working against?
1: Well, man, you say a lot. And I before I get to that, I just want to I have to speak on a couple points that you bring up, Paul. First of all, thank you for sharing what you just shared and your vulnerability to do that. And what I've found is I'm also uh, one of those boys who had an unwanted sexual experience. And just as you said, we never talk about these things. And, when, and then when we do, as adults, after going through all that pain, right? And even being in, talking about being in recovery, such, a, you know, men self medicate in so many different ways because of the pain that we have that we never get to express, right? Whether it's being sexually. Uh, abused as a child or being hurt and not being able to express those feelings when we tell that little boy, stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. When we tell him to stop crying, we're telling him to stop feeling. He doesn't know the difference. And as a result, that emotional stress literally turns itself into physical stress as we get older. And we're dying six years earlier than women. Also because we're not as, we're taught in this man box to not ask for help because you're not supposed to be vulnerable. So we don't go to the doctor when something is wrong, right? So all these things, and then we get involved and engaged in high risk behavior because we're taught that the way you prove you're a man is to do high risk things so all these things man are really harming us and just as you experience when you share those things with men even the most even those men who are in the most hyper masculine living situations or i mean we work with the all professional sports leagues nfl nhl basketball, and nba major league baseball major league soccer military law enforcement hyper masculine spaces man and when we have these conversations they get it more than anyone because they've had to live in the man box all the time right? what, are some,
0: what are some of the reactions when they oh man here talk, well, talk about some spe- specifics you don't have to name names if you want to keep them anonymous I but
1: i won't i won't i want well i want to i want to share one thing i mean let me just share this that men whether they're in hypermasculine spaces or not are thirsty for this conversation and want to have it. And that's why when we have conversations with boys, they get it because they know something's off <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I'm hurt and I can't cry, right? And then the only emotion, and you mentioned it earlier, the only emotion we're allowed to express is anger, even though anger is covering up all these other things. Right? And it's domination. Awesome. And domination, right, and domination of women, of children, of each other, like that's what it's about, the aggression, and aggression has its place, man, right, I mean, if you're a runner or an athlete or even in the business world, aggression has its place, you want to be aggressive to succeed in some sense, if our military is in a conflict, I want them to come home, right, I want them to be aggressive, right, if it means them coming home or not, but not in our personal lives, that we don't have to do that. So you said so many things. And so the safe space is really important. And strength, when we start defining strength as vulnerability, then it's not how much you can bench press. It's how deep you can go, right? And so that's where the strength comes in. So I love seeing athletes because they are men who other men look up to, like, you know, Michael Phelps talks a lot about mental health. David Love, if you have the Calm app, LeBron James is on the calm app talking, you know, talking about peace, peace of your mind, you know, being, having a peaceful mind, all this. Like, that's what we need. Right. So, so, the, and that's what the dares get to actually the dares get to for, the, for, for uh, boys is really encouraging them to what, one of the dares is what have you been afraid of and haven't shared with somebody? Um, there's a dare uh, around um, share three emotions that you experienced today. Like there's all kinds of dares that tap into that healthy manhood, healthy masculinity, authenticity. So that's what we really wanted to get at, Paul. Those, All of those things, this is a prevention tool. This is going to prevent suicide, anxiety, depression. It's going to prevent gun shootings. Those kids who pick up that gun are outcasts. They, they, they feel left out. I'm not justifying what they're doing. I'm just saying that. Our boys are in pain on so many different levels and that they're, you know, it's not safe for them to share that pain without being laughed at, without being ridiculed, oftentimes by men. And even when we look at the sexual abuse that children experience, like yourself, me, and so many others, right, most of that abuse, there's there's some from women to children, but a lot of it's from men to children as well. And when we talk about men and manhood, let me just share this. Um, because I want your I want your view, your audience to 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 understand. As we talk about this thing and addressing the issue of manhood, I'm not indicting men. We're not indicting men in any way. It's an I, I think that's pretty clear. Okay, it's not yeah. about calling men out, but calling men in. That's really important because it's about love, man. The only way we can get through this is love. We've tried everything else. Yeah,
0: I mean it. It. I think at the core of most of our emotional life, there's one of two emotions going on, and it's very hard for them to occupy the same space, is love and fear. I mean, you look at anger, and underneath anger
1: is fear. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. But we don't, see, because we were that little boy who wasn't allowed to express their feelings or to talk about their feelings or even to name them. Right. So now we grow up to be these men who aren't emotionally, we're not, we're not literate emotionally. You know, if you know, there's a let's say there's a man in the audience who's involved with a woman, and she wants him to share his feelings. He what he's saying to her is, "I feel like I want you to stop asking me. (laughs) That's my feeling." (laughs) Right? Because women, man, listen. You put together, you know, that you know, if I have six couples, right, and I'm doing this. This is a binary conversation for the just uh, that I'm that I'm just having here. If I have six couples, men and women, and I get the six guys in one room, we're we're gonna spend. four hours together and the women are in the other room for four hours. At the end of the four hours, the women are coming out. They know all about each other, the pain they've experienced, where they are in their relationship, their goals, what they want, the, the, the uh, lessons they've learned. The men have talked about, they know the sports team the other guy likes, whatever, uh you know, whatever job he's doing and maybe how many kids we have, you know, like that's about it. We are not, we don't have the language or the skills to go deeper because when we were that little boy, we were told, we're not going to listen to what's going on. We're going to keep it moving, son. So stop crying. I don't really want to hear it. It's over. Keep it moving. Right. Where. Which is a form of fear. They're
0: afraid that things are going to get messy. That someone's going to look weak. Yes. I mean, like you look at what happened with the with the storming of the Capitol, and I was looking at at the anger in those uh, mostly men, and and I thought to myself, they're afraid. They're afraid that they're, the worst case scenario in their head is going to come true in their country, and if we don't address what's, what's going on with people psychologically, there's, there's, there's no hope. And some people, I don't think you're ever going to get through them. I think they've drank too much of the Kool-Aid and you're possibly wasting your time, but uh, you know, how do we, how do we get people to open up about their, their fears when it's something as intensely partisan as what's happening right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. These are deep questions, Paul. And, and, you know, I think what we have to do is model what we want and also extend love all the time. Like as difficult as that might be, we have to extend love all the time because what's often threatening to people, the fear that you're talking about is losing something, right? So, Yes, they were mostly men. They were mostly white men. So we're talking about power, right? Or feeling that they're losing. I don't know. I I don't want to speak for them, but they're feeling that they're losing something, that someone's getting what they have and what they're entitled to, right? right? And so, and, you know, I also want to say that, you know, I don't, you know, again, I don't want to speak for them and I don't want to judge them, but I do want to know that we need to, as men, Figure out different ways to solve our problems other than aggression, because that's one thing that's clear that aggression and violence is something that they wanted to solve the problem with and we need to figure out other ways, but we don't learn how to solve problems. Other than dominating and being aggressive, we don't learn to use our language because, again, when we were those little boys, it wasn't about problem solving from an emotional point of view or or a verbal point of view. It was around a physical point of view. You either move away from the situation or you solve it in a quick way, which is usually aggression, and you keep it moving. And we often learn that even uh, as children with our parents, right? You know, the dad's a disciplinarian and so forth and so on. And uh, um, so so I, so, I think it's really around us having empathy for each other. One thing I'm hopeful for, I was hopeful for it four years ago, that we would use this as a point to forgive everything <laughs> and reset. And, uh, and I'm hoping for that now, that we find a way to move past it, that... W- um, one of the things we say at A Call to Men is, as we look at fairness and respect and, and, and uh, uh, gender equity, is that there's nothing for men to worry about. Like, we don't have to fear anything from women. And actually, that the liberation of, of men is directly tied to the liberation of women. And I would say the liberation of trans people is directly tied to the liberation um, of men is directly tied to the liberation of trans people. Because when they're free and liberated, then we are too, right? I mean, South Africa taught us that. Nelson Mandela taught us that. Like everyone, when you have an oppression, everyone's attached to that oppression, right? Even the oppressor. And the same thing I would say to to, uh, to, to white people as a black man is that the liberation of white folks is directly tied to liberation of black folks. That's when we'll all be free and you're not losing anything. As men, we're not losing anything. We're only gaining something. We're, getting, we're becoming closer to our humanity. When I can be my full authentic self, and I don't have to live in this man box, Paul, when I can be vulnerable with you, then I benefit in so many different ways. And I connect with you on a humanity level that I would have never had before give me some
0: examples of conversations that you've had with professional athletes. I'm, I'm always kind of, I've interviewed a few, but I'm, I've always been fascinated about what the inner life is of somebody who can reach the top, top of their game. I know a lot of them have at the very least idiosyncrasies and you know, and the worst end of the spectrum are borderline psychopathic and their desire to win What do you say?
1: Well, um, professional athletes in any sport are driven in ways that, I mean, you have to be driven to keep going, to keep wanting to get better, to keep wanting to succeed. So I think there's a drive that they certainly have, whether it's sports or whether it's in the business world, even, you know, I think that, you know, i you know, I think that that's something that, you know, that, that competitiveness and wanting to be the best is really there in those folks in different ways, as well as the talent, of course. Yes. Now,
0: and, and it, talking about the business world, psychopathy, there's a great book called the psychopath next door. And the three professions that um, people are drawn to that have psychopathy are uh, politics uh, being CEOs and law enforcement.
1: Now see those things there. And I, that, that makes sense to me. And those things there. So in our society, Politics, business world, law enforcement, professional athletes—like those—are all things that are valued based on this hypermasculine model, this man box that we have, right? So, so you know, we don't we don't value teachers in the same way, or or nurses in the same way, right? I mean, we've got a different respect for nurses now over the last ten months, but um, but 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 so we so we put value on those hyper-masculine kind of. Uh, positions, so my work with professional athletes and we work with athletes for on every level for uh, most of the life of your quarter man, certainly the last ten years on a on a consistent basis and These men I find are just like any other men and um, when we when we look at for instance. Uh, we look at a very hyper-masculine sport, one that is violent in nature, one that's probably the number one sport at this point, anyway. The NBA is coming up quite a bit, but but the NFL is probably still the number one sport. You know, the Super Bowl is watched more than the more than more than more than anything else. Those men I find are good men, hardworking men, and very caring men. These are men who uh, are very driven in their sport, certainly. But also are good men's, men in their community and in their society. And actually, um, when we look at uh, when you look at domestic violence or sexual assault in uh, professional athletes in the NFL, it's actually at the level or less than the general population. Really? But, but yes. But when it happens, it's bigger. It's louder. Oh, because it gets every- publicized. Yes, yeah. and because there's a myth that because they're in a violent sport. Yeah. Violent men. And I have not found that to be the case. Oh, wow.
0: Be- I yeah. bought into that myth.
1: Yeah. Well, th- yeah, thank yeah. you
0: for uh, for yeah. disabusing no. me uh, of yeah. that. No,
1: and, it's important.
0: That's- and, you know, when whenever we're talking about uh, subjects like we are, uh, I always feel it necessary to uh, say that I was not a friend of women for a large part of my life. Um, I, I am, I have shame when I look back at how I used sex as, uh, power, uh, how I objectified. And I I just want to make sure that I don't come off as this guy who always had it all together. And, you know, the rest of you, you know, catch up to me. It was easy to get here. It was not, you know, I, I hurt people. Um, I was arrogant. I was entitled. Uh, I was all the things that that today make me angry when I when I see it in a person. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to think that I am proof that, you know, assholes can uh, (laughs) can become people Mm -hmm. that society benefits from.
1: Well, I have no doubt about that, Paul. And um, let me just say also, I'm going to join you in that I have not been the perfect man and there isn't a man out there in the listening audience who has. He doesn't exist. And I'll tell you why. We've all been taught not to be friends of women. We've all grown up in a sexist, misogynistic society. We've all been taught three main pieces. When we talk about the man box, the collective socialization of manhood teaches us three main things. If you can just let me share this a little bit, because I think it, it will resonate with all the men on the line. So these three things are, we're all taught that we're, that women and girls have less value than men and boys. We're all taught that, right? Doesn't mean you believe it, doesn't mean you act on it, but we've been taught that. For example, I'm just going to put this out as a hypothetical. There's a six-year-old boy in the, on Main Street USA in the community of anyone listening in this audience, great kid, spending time with his uncle, his coach, his father, Another, in a, an adult male teaching him how to throw a football. And he teaches him how to throw a football. He's got a miniature football for him. He has his fingers on the laces. He's teaching him how to throw it. And, and dad, uncle, coach, big brother gets a little frustrated and says, son, you have to throw hard on that. You throw like a, yeah. right? Okay. Everyone knows the answer to that. It a, doesn't Chicago, mean that... a
0: Chicago bear. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> Everyone knows the answer to that right now. It doesn't mean you believe the answer, but you know it. So what does that mean? That means that how did you learn that? We've been taught this. It's in our socialization. It's in the air that we breathe. We do things like that all the time on the golf course with some of your friends. Hey, buddy. All right, girls, let's go. Right, all of those things where we're putting women and girls down all the time. So we're all taught what you said that you're not a friend to women. We've all been taught not to be a friend to women. Actually, if you are a friend to to a woman, you're seen as less than a man. In other words, if I have a high school boy in your community, Paul, or any high school boy, great kid, his name's John. John is going out. He's a senior. Perfect, he's your model kid, model student. He's a senior at your local high school taking out Kathy for the first time. He's taking her to a movie. This was before COVID. <laughs> he's taking her to a movie and he's getting on a group text with a couple of his buddies, right? And he gets on a group text and say, hey guys, I'm gonna take Kathy to a movie. I'll hit you guys up later, right? Okay, they give him a little crap for that. Oh take Kathy to the movie, blah 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 blah, right? But he takes her, right? Brings her home, perfect gentleman, gets back on the group text and says, hey, Guys, I'm back from the movie. Is the first thing those boys ask him is, How was the movie?
0: No, it's, no. Did, did you, did you, fuck her
1: right? Where did they learn that? They're 17 years old. It's, we pass it down from one generation to the next. Now, if John has the courage to say, Oh, I wasn't trying to get anything, I just want to be her friend, they got words for him for that too, right? What's more, you don't like girls, you're this, you're that, so. Back to your point, not taught to be a friend of girls, you're right. We're not taught to be a friend of women either because if you're, because the, the, only, the only interest we're supposed to have is sexual. And if it's other than that, then there's something wrong with you, right? So, those, so that's one thing, less value is what we're taught. The other thing is that the women are the property of men on some level. So if I'm anywhere in the United States and I see a man right now in 2021, with all we know about domestic violence, if I see him hit her, his girlfriend or his wife, and I walk over to him and say, knock it off. What does he say to me in your community, Paul?
0: Fuck you. Mind your own business.
1: Exactly. He says that everywhere in the United States. And actually in every other country I've been to where there's patriarchy and sexism and male domination, this is the way it looks now. So where did, you knew the answer to that. Mind your business. I know the answer to that. That's our collective socialization. And we pass that down to our boys. That's why dating violence is has similar rates to domestic violence. Because our boys think we're supposed to control her. If she doesn't do what I like, she doesn't respond to my text soon enough. If she doesn't show up where I say show up, all that's male domination and how it gets played out. Now, this is not an indictment on manhood. I want to make that clear, right? It's an invitation to men. We're all swimming in the same water. We've inherited this thing, just like racial issues, sex, sexist issues we've inherited also. It's, it's in the air that we breathe. And then the final thing is the sexual objectification of women is something we're taught. So that even with when Me Too occurred, right? We all fell back on our heels a little bit as men. Every man, including myself, looked in the rearview mirror. Because we know that we've had something to do with that on some level. And I haven't met a man, and we've been in front of uh, since the inception of the organization, at least 1 million men physically in front of. We do a lot of work. I haven't met a man, Paul, who hasn't either done something or said something that has sexually objectified a woman or witnessed another man doing something or saying something and did nothing about it, including myself. Now, I can do something now, but you want to go back to my college days? Oh, man, I don't want you back there. So this is my point, is that we're all taught this. And I can say confidently that I haven't met a man because one of the ways that we have to prove that we're men is to objectify women. So saying you look great in that dress sounds differently now than it did three years ago. But men say that because we think we're supposed to say it because the only interaction, the only way we interact with women is a sexual way because that's all we've been taught. They are to us. So it's in the air that we breathe and that's that collective socialization that we want to interrupt. And that's what we do at a cult men. That's what the book does for our boys and so forth.
0: Thank you for, for all that. I mean, there's so much illuminating stuff and uh as you were talking about that, I was, I was thinking the models we have for what it is to be a man, obviously the first model is our dad. And, you know, you were talking about befriending women and instead of objectifying them, I think one of the things that's, that, Hampers a lot of kids is growing up and seeing their parents in a loveless marriage. If your dad isn't a friend to your mom, if he's not interested in what she has to say, that does so much. And and I think I'm I'm certainly not blaming it on my mom and my dad, but I'm saying that there was a void there for for me to see uh, how how to be friends with a woman.
1: Yes, uh, I would. I would agree that you know what we're exposed to as children totally impacts us, and that those men in our lives, our dads, were not taught really how to be friends. Also, I'm not excusing behaviors. I'm not. Right. I don't know. Don't know your relationship your dad and mom had, but that wasn't what we were, we were taught to be providers. And then we come home, put our foot up. She's supposed to serve dinner, and you know, what I mean, that, that's from the old school that I'm from. Our yeah, yeah. We're from college.
0: the same generation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So,
1: but but um so yes it 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 really it really falls on dads to have these conversations with our boys and to model the behavior we want you're absolutely right because if he would have modeled something differently you would have seen something differently and maybe interacted with women in a different way but even with the dad who models things perfectly right like i have i don't do it perfectly but i have conversations with my kids all the time around gender, around race, around religion, around respecting people, right, around heterosexism. But they go out into the world and get all these other messages, and they come home, and it's like I have to give them a (laughs) tune-up, right? Well, I got to alter that. I got to change that a little bit. Let me take this out and put this back in, right? So even with all of that. Now, what the beauty is, though, for myself, unlike you, my dad wasn't in my life. He and my mom divorced when I was about six and he had mental illness. So it was probably best that he wasn't. Right. Yeah. Cause he was, he, he was, uh he was, he was very, uh, it was like a, whenever he would come around, it was like, uh, I I remember feeling like it was just this tornado that came in, Blew everything up, around. And, 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 and,
0: to then, clar- and to clarify, you mean untreated untreated mental illness? Yes,
1: yes, yes. Thank yeah,
0: you. Yeah, because to me, there's a big distinction. Oh, yeah. yes. 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 Yes.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I know. I, I I uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And um, uh, it was schizophrenia. Yeah. So um, so, so, I and I longed for my father, <clears throat> and I think, on some level, and I had these conversations with my mom before she passed, that. And I see this with boys with single moms whose dad's not in their life now. And that's what really made me tap into it for myself with all the work that we've done at Call to Men. I think in many ways as a child, I I blamed my mom for, you know, it must be you that that's why he's not here. So a lot of the anger that our boys have and they direct toward their mother is really toward their father. It's just misdirected but they don't know what to do with it. Because again, we're not sitting down having conversations about these things. We're not, we're not encouraged to talk about these things. So I and, thought-
0: and I'm glad you mentioned that because something my whole life I've had trouble getting in touch with is where is the anger at my dad? Um, you know, my mom smothered me and was, was inappropriate and was certainly abusive in the boundaries that she crossed um, treated me like her therapist. But my dad was, was, absolutely disengaged and that that contributed to that and i wonder why it is that i no longer feel anger at at my mom she she's not in my life anymore and i had to do that to kind of save myself um but i i when i did tap into the anger and therapy and stuff it was rage it was serious serious rage but I've never felt that from my dad and yet my dad really in in so many ways let me down. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mine too, man. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. I appreciate that. And, um, I'm sorry you went through all of that. And, you know, with, with me, my father really let me down too. And I think that with me as a father, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm a father of six. There, um, I have four children. Three of my biological children who are African American black kids. One is a Nigerian kid who's been with us since he's been about 14, and then uh, two white kids um, who have a mom and who ha- who who have um, a mother, but their father died when they were very young. And I've just kind of because they've been friends of my kids from a very early age, they started calling me dad, and I leaned in and found out wow. what was going on and talked to their mom and they were like overwhelmed. <laughs> Asked them, you know, I can hold that space for you. Would you like, you call me dad, would you like me to, to be there for you? And they were like, yes. And uh, I talked to mom and she was like, thank you, yes. And, you know, and it's just been wonderful ever since, you know, so, um, so I think that for me, even with my children, I've become the father that I've wanted for myself, right? So, and you know, maybe overcompensating in some ways, but I think we all do that as parents in one way or another, but, but, but that's really what i try to do. What would I, you know, really, what would I have wanted? So it's, so it's not only being the best father for them I can be, but it's healing the little boy and myself too.
0: Isn't it? It, the, the, it sounds cheesy, but the power of love and the power of of service, and you know, not to the point of codependency or, uh, you know, um, at the at the sake of ignoring your your own needs. But when you when you take care of yourself, and I and I know you you're I'm preaching to the choir, but when you take care of yourself, you have an abundance then of love to give. And your battery isn't drained and you're not giving from a place of fear of being judged or being a bad person. Rather, I want to give this. And one of the things uh, I, I had to start going to a support group for intimacy issues because I could not connect my heart and my dick. It it was it was uh, I was just shut off, completely shut off from from my emotions And one of the things that they stressed in my group is the person you are looking for in a partner become that person. Mm, And that was that was a real revelation, because so many of us think that if we can just find somebody, they're going to fix us. Mm. They're going to fill that emptiness.
1: That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing the support that you've received, you know, and I've, you know, been in and out of therapy different times of my life. And I want to encourage men out there also, if they're not, that having a sounding board is a wonderful thing. You know, Um, there's been times my children, I've encouraged them and they have gone into therapy also, because as I say to them, sometimes you just want to talk about how your parents get on your nerves. somebody who's objective you know what i mean like that's okay you know what i mean and um and you know that's 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 been helpful for them as well you know so i really encourage that because as we give and give and give we really need to be able to have uh i found it helpful anyway to have a sounding board and it helps me keep my cup full
0: well ted thank you so much uh i've really got a lot out of uh our conversation and uh i have the feeling People listening are going to get a lot out of it too. And uh, thanks for being a, a great advocate for the direction we need to start heading as a, as a society.
1: Well, thank you, Paul. I'll say right back at you. You know, I appreciate you using your platform to allow a call to man to share a little bit about, their, about our work and about me to share a little bit about myself. And if I could just let people know about the website, if that's okay.
0: Please, I was just going to ask you, social media yeah. handles, all that stuff.
1: Great, great. So um, our website is a call to um, Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is at a call to men. I also have an Instagram at ted.bunch. And um, the book of dares is on Amazon, or you can go to our website, and it's right on the home page. And it's really great for um, any boys in your life; it's going to be help.
0: I, I would love to see uh, teachers starting to implement that. That, uh, well, parents obviously they're they're the first line of uh, defense. Yeah. But yeah, it would be that would be great. Thanks Bye. so much, Ted.
1: Thank you so much, Paul.
0: What a nice nice man. Uh, If you want to know more about him, we'll have links in the show notes for this uh, episode. We are going to dive into some surveys. This is from the the newish survey uh, that we have called the Back in Time survey. Uh, Share a moment in your life where you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. Describe the situation, your age, and what you'd say to yourself. And uh, Razor Shroud writes, You know what, Paul? I wrote a whole thing out here before I realized that if I changed anything in my life, then I wouldn't be who I am today. My life isn't perfect or all that great, really, but I like who I am now. I had to work and struggle to get here, and that's okay. Thank you for that. And, you know, I thought about that when I was creating this survey. And so the the, the survey was more of a... um." of a comfort thing than a trying to change the path uh, that that somebody was taking in their life. Because I do agree with you. I I, I think, you know, if we really do work to, to try to heal and become the person that we want to be and be connected to others and be of service and have the ability to love and receive love, um, we need to go through that difficult shit. But Anyway, this is from the same survey filled out by Todd S., and he writes, When I was a college freshman, I wish I had heard, you can just take classes that interest you until you find your way. Or when I stepped into the next level of business to hear, slow down, look at the big picture here. This is actually a great opportunity. Nobody's trying to screw you. Thanks for that, Todd. And that described my experience in in college i think i changed my major about five or six times before i finally landed on uh the the very valuable theater degree uh this is from the loves survey filled out by electra and she writes i love moving into my own place where i feel safe and at home for the first time since i can remember I love getting to use my cups that I've had in storage for years and hanging up my blue 1990s iridescent dolphin door beads. I don't know what the fuck those are. I know what 90s and iridescent and door beads are, but I have no idea. Does it mean that the beads are shaped like dolphins? Do you have a roommate who is a dolphin and just likes to pop in? Dolphin's notorious for hating locks. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by Nicole. She writes, I would go back to my first long-term relationship. I ended by having an affair. I wish I could tell my younger self... That being honest about my unhappiness in the relationship and having the courage to end it is way easier than waiting to be found out. I was 24 at the time. The relationship was eight years and he was my high school sweetheart. That is such a great one, Nicole, and such an important one. The lengths we will go to to avoid difficult conversations is mind-blowing, mind-blowing. But, you know, if we don't even know what we're feeling, if it wasn't modeled for us as as kids, we don't know how to have the conversation, and that's again why I beat the drum about support groups. That is where we we get to find the words to express what it is that we're feeling, and to understand what it even is that we're feeling. We get to I got to find out what my right size needs were. So many things. So many things, but thank you for that. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself 100th Broken Window, and about his depression. He writes, nothing matters, but I should be doing something important with my life. That's such a good one. Oh my God. Thank you for that. This was filled out by Sarah, and uh, uh, she struggles with uh, depression and anxiety. And snapshot from her life, she writes, "Uh, I was 16 and having another fight with my mom. I'm standing in front of her. I don't remember what I said, but I remember what she said. Maybe I should have had an abortion. Do you know how many times I have read that on this podcast? It is so fucked up that people use that as the ace, parents use that as the ace up their sleeve when they... Want to get the best of a kid. They should actually make a law that if you're going to pull that out, you have to pull it out from a a suit pocket like a card (laughs) and do it with a flourish and a drum roll. This is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, this will test your acceptance and openness level. He is uh, identifies as straight in his 30s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been physically or sexually abused. Darkest thoughts. I have a fetish that is weirder than any of the others you've read on your podcast so far. Uh, by the way, I have read your survey already, and it is not. When you read these secrets on your show uh, and then show your acceptance, it seems so nice. I assume my fetish will be too strange even for you to accept. Uh, the strange thing about my fetish is that I had a perfectly normal upbringing, healthy relationships with both parents and my sister. I have never been sexually abused and have never sexually abused anyone. I have no anger towards women and fully believe that everyone should be treated equally. That is why it is so strange that I like to watch porn that involves women being humiliated and dominated. I like to watch porn in which women get ejaculated on, pissed on, shit on, forced to swallow excrement and even get fucked by animals. Sometimes I also like to watch videos of women shitting and pissing without the humiliation domination aspect. As soon as I finish watching any of these videos I feel gross and shameful. I would never wish for anyone to experience these things against their will and I also am strongly against animal cruelty. This all goes against my morals, obviously, and I've never tried anything like this in real life, nor do I plan to. I hate that these things turn me on. It is embarrassing and shameful, but sadly we don't get to choose what turns us on. I wish that I could be turned on by vanilla missionary sex. I have some other stranger fetishes too, for example, uh, shemales, even though I am fully heterosexual. Again, I would never be with a shemale in real life. I just watch the porn sometimes. Uh, what is wrong with me? Is it too fucked up for you to accept and forgive? Forgive Paul. First of all, it is not my place to forgive, forgive anyone. Um, uh, the the first thing I want to point out is the the term uh, shemale is a derogatory, uh, hurtful uh, term. Uh, so. Anybody who is still using that and thinks it's okay, it please say you know trans trans woman. Um, but buddy, yeah, you know you said it. We don't get to choose what turns us on, and if if people are willingly doing pornography, and I know there's a very gray area where people are taken advantage of in pornography, but there's a big difference between uh, pornography that is filmed without someone's consent and pornography that is filmed with the consent of someone who enjoys that fetish. You know, if if the latter is the case, you know, jerk off onward and upward and and love yourself. You know, it's when pornography becomes addictive and starts interfering with our lives, you know, or we're harming other people that it becomes an, an issue. And obviously there's a lot of gray area in there. But buddy, you sound like a, a a sweet, sensitive guy who is um needs to put down the bat and stop stop beating himself up, said the pot to the kettle. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Cody. And he writes, I'm afraid I'll become just like my mother, an abusive alcoholic, destroying loved ones without realizing I'm doing it or caring until they leave. I don't have to think about an if. It's happening right now, and the person I cared for more than anything left, simply because I fucking destroyed her. I don't deserve to seek help this late. I don't deserve to wake up. Now I just wait for cirrhosis to take me out. Cody, buddy... You are dealing with what sounds like untreated alcoholism, and one of the signs of it is deep, deep, deep self-pity and inaction. And self-pity, in many ways, is just a disguised fear of failure and rejection by taking action. And for many of us, myself included, the fear of dying had to become greater than my fear of asking for help and looking foolish or weak or wrong or all of the other intellectual things that I had used as my shield of armor to go through life. turns out vulnerability and human connection and a sense of purpose was what I was looking for, but I didn't know it. And if you stay in this place of self-pity, you will miss out on that. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, inside the the you that is, you know, quote-unquote, quote, destroying loved ones is probably a sensitive, beautiful, caring guy that has no tools to cope with the feelings that are overwhelming him. And as a result, you turn to alcohol because you've never tried anything different. So little tough love, buddy. Get out of the self-pity party and ask for some fucking help. You're worth it. Now I sound like a fucking soapbox, touchy-feely Sedona (laughs) douchebag. Um, This is by my buddy Joe Carell, the Back in Time survey. He writes, uh, probably go back to my early 20s. I would say relax. You're going to live an unusual, fascinating, exciting life. Try to enjoy all the little moments and really appreciate every second. Love, Joe. Thank you for that, Joe. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Earl. And he writes, uh, I love getting an iced coffee and pouring in some creamer and just watching it blend into the dark coffee. That is such a great one. Such a simple one, too. And I think it's, it's also... Turbocharged by the the fact that we know we're getting our caffeine fix, uh, it is hard to be in a bad mood as you are in that space a minute before you get your your caffeinated drink. This is from the fears survey filled out by Avery, uh, and Avery is seventeen and writes, uh, "I fear death without my consent." I'm ready to go to the next life, but I want to go on my own terms. I'm okay with leaving this world at any time in any way, but I want it to be when I am ready. I don't know if that makes sense. I think it does make sense that, that we don't want to suffer or for it to be random. Um, but I don't know, just something about the, the phrase death without my consent just made me laugh. I just suddenly pictured the, you know, the grim reaper handing you some gigantic form you got to fill out just pointing pointing with his sith if you could initial here and here again and here i found out by the way what the difference is between a sith and a sickle uh up until i searched this about an hour ago i thought sith was also pronounced sickle Oh, I'm an idiot. Found out the difference is is a Sith, which is spelled S-Y-C-T-H-E, was used to harvest crops by swinging it. It's a curved blade. And you just do it freely. You don't hold the crops while you're doing it. Whereas a sickle, you have the option of, it's shaped the same way, you have the option of holding the crops while you swing the blade and harvest them. And apparently, the Grim Reaper uses a sith, which I assume is because he's got a bum shoulder. From, oh, don't say it. From from all the Kennedys. I had to say it. I had to say it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself two Tea Bags. She identifies as mostly straight but vicurious. She She's in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My body has memories that my mind does not, and this strikes most in relation to my sexuality and intimacy. I have always had a strong sex drive and fantasize regularly, Yet, I have always found it hard to fully relax with a guy when we have been physical together. Feelings of fear and mistrust are often present. I go through the motions. Having said that... I have not been physical with a guy in several years. I have always wondered if I was molested at a time that I cannot remember, but I have never discovered this. My father, who has since passed, often made inappropriate comments about women in front of me and my sisters. He talked very openly about his sexual encounters. I guess you could say he objectified women. Despite all of my therapy, I still feel that there may be something deep in the tissues of my body where a man took advantage of me. Yes, yes your father took advantage of you. He used you. He sexualized you. He abused you. That is emotional sexual abuse. That is covert incest. Foisting your sexuality onto an unwilling child is a form of sexual abuse. So, in my opinion, you don't need to be looking for some you know, magic bullet to explain it. It's right there on the page. You felt unsafe. Your dad was fucking creepy. Uh, And yet this trauma may be a result of something else. This is not something anyone truly wants, is it? I very much relate to, to to what you're writing, by the way. It took me 50 years to understand what happened to me was covert sexual abuse. And that it was at the root of my fear of intimacy and anger and sadness and fear of, of trust. She's also been emotionally abused. Well, not surprised. Uh, my dad was a very angry man. He was quick to shout, to lose his temper. He was emotionally unavailable a lot of the time. He was always stressed when he came home from work. I spent my life walking on eggshells around him. He would beat the shit out of you about something, then probably feel guilty, would suddenly act like nothing had happened, only to get angry again when you saw you were still hurt. He sounds like a total narcissist, which people who abuse uh, their their kids, uh, especially sexually, man, is there is there an act more narcissistic than that? You know? It sounds like with your dad, it was all about him, all about his feelings. And deep inside, he is probably a hurt, emotional five-year-old trying to cope with life, but that doesn't make what he did okay. Uh, Having said that, uh, any positive experiences with abusers? Uh, Well, my dad always tried his best to provide for us, even if he did it badly. He had a wicked sense of humor, and we shared many a joke when I was older darkest thoughts. During my worst periods of intrusive thoughts, which I don't know were intrusive... I didn't know were intrusive at the time. I would think really aggressive thoughts about people, like internal Tourette's. I even began having really racist, racist thoughts about black people especially. This only fueled my anxiety further and made me incredibly ashamed. I have sometimes also had intrusive sexual images about children, brief and very graphic. Sometimes... When I was fond of a kid, when I was teaching English abroad, this thought would come to me. Thankfully, they weren't too persistent. Darkest Secrets. Despite being very guarded, I'm a pretty open person about the dark things in my mind, probably because of all the agonizing I did over the years. That's not to say I still don't think deep, dark things, but for some reason I am drawing a blank. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Uh, They fall into two categories, purely physical sexual pleasure, lesbian fantasies. I used to feel very conflicted about these, but realize they are pretty common. They really do fire me up physically. The orgasm I get from them is much more intense and long-lasting. The women in them are usually fictional, not people I know. Physical and emotional pleasure. These always involve some guy I'm obsessed with and really fancy. Uh, I assume that you're English and meaning fancy, as in you really like them, not fancy, and that you're blowing them while he wears a tuxedo. In recent years, they mainly consist of me shagging them passionately and that it's really amazing. I guess it's a fantasy of something I've never experienced because of my trauma and dysfunction. I try not to get too emotional about these because I often end up crying if I do. Sharing that makes me think no differently, really. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To a lot of people in my life that I've crossed paths with and still don't know anymore, I'm sorry if I seem rude or distant. I'm sorry that I had to go. It just gets too much. I get overwhelmed. My system literally can't handle it. You are making me feel uncomfortable. My face hurts, and I need to go. Please don't take it personally. Just leave me the fuck alone, okay? And that is one of the hallmarks, by the way, of somebody who has been uh, incested is you feel overwhelmed. You have difficulty having a vulnerable open conversation and you deal with it by shutting down or running. And by the way, that would make a great t-shirt. My face hurts and I need to go. What, if anything, you you wish for? To move through the world and not feel so vigilant, overwhelmed, overstimulated, and claustrophobic. I mean, if you look at those things, those were all the things when you were a child that you had to have at your disposal to cope with a creepy dad who didn't respect your boundaries and was, was violent. You had to be vigilant. Of course, you felt overwhelmed. Of course, it was overly stimulating. And, of course, you felt trapped and claustrophobic. I'd love to end the cycle of fantasy addiction to strange men that goes on in my head. Also, another hallmark of, you know, uh, fear of intimacy is we become attracted to people who are physically or emotionally unavailable. Because the idea of a relationship, letting somebody in, seems overwhelming terrifying, dreadful, boring, suffocating. Because our experience with with our caretaker was that. That was the feeling. But you can't unwire that. It just takes work. I'd like to feel a sense of space in my outer world, and not just when I am alone, but with others. It's tiring. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared my experiences with family and friends. They understand some of it, but not all. I try not to feel ashamed or melodramatic. I sometimes wish I knew someone else who had my issues and we could talk over it together. I'm tired of being so broken and fragile. There are support groups out there for people who have experienced incest. And I encourage you to to Google some uh, if you... If you need suggestions shoot me an email through the website and i can suggest some but what you experienced is a real thing that is wounding and takes work to to process but you are not beyond healing i can tell you that psychopaths are beyond healing because they don't believe they need healing. But a person who is seeking to grow and become whole, I like their chances. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Not John, and uh, he writes, I went to a benefit show to support my friends while visiting my hometown a few years ago. It was a blast. I got to see a lot of my old high school friends and acquaintances. Later in the evening, I ran into a friend who was a bit shy and reserved in high school, but had really grown into themselves since I moved away. They had realized they were non-binary and learned to let their freak flag fly and were really rocking it. As we were talking, a friend of theirs joined the conversation. They proceeded to explain to her that, quote, This guy was a big influence on me in high school, really taught me how to accept myself for who I was, and helped me open up. I'd like you to meet John." My name's not John. (laughs) Fucking love it. Oh, my God. Thank you for that. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Veronica. And uh, Veronica identifies as male but questioning. And uh, he writes... Diagnosed bipolar 1 three years ago. I recently got out of a month-long manic episode. During my mania, I decided to start cross-dressing in women's clothes. A few hundred dollars later, I had several outfits and a full set of makeup. I decided on the name Veronica because I felt it was a sexy name, and I don't know a Veronica in my day-to-day life. I dressed up and sexted a few dozen random men and women for a solid month during my mania. Now that my mania is over, I am thrilled to say Veronica was not just a phase or a manic mistake, but here to stay. My close friends have all been nothing but supportive, and I go over to their houses and dress up regularly. My therapist suggested I keep Veronica special and only reveal her to close friends, and I fully agree now that I am not in mania. I love deciding one day I want to be feminine and another I want to be masculine. I am not sure what I would classify my gender anymore. I'm also not sure what my end goal with Veronica is or if I will ever go out in public. All I know for certain is my blonde wig looks fucking gorgeous. Goddamn right, Veronica. God damn right it does. That is so awesome. And yeah, I love that you you don't feel like you need to put a label on what anything is or where it's headed. You know that's how it should be. It it just love it, love it. High five! Not only do you, Veronica, but you rockin' rocking wig. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, actually, there's one person I hope hated this episode. And if they did enjoy it, I cast them to hell. And I cast them to hell not with the sweeping arm motion that you imagine. I cast them to hell by cupping them in my hand and rolling them to hell like a yo-yo. But there's no coming back. It's just straight down. Just like a missile. Just a hot missile. Boring pouring through the core of the earth. Which brings up the question, is is hell at the center of the earth? Because if hell is beyond the center of the earth, then on the other side of the world, hell is not quite at the center of the earth. I I got some research that I need to do. And by research, I mean playing my video games until I hate myself. Anyway, uh, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.